Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Monday, February 6th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Windy and warmer today. A few showers possible this evening. The big story today will again be milder temperatures and breezy conditions. Before we get to that, though, watch for areas of locally dense fog over the deeper snow cover to the north this morning. Look for wind gusts of 30 to 35 miles per hour later this morning into the afternoon as this warm front advances through the area. From Cedar Rapids and points to the south, an afternoon of 50-plus degrees looks likely. Further north over the deeper snow, look for highs to stay into the 40s. The next system is still set to move through the area tonight, with a chance of rain showers. These look pretty light and shouldn't cause too much trouble. The next system that arrives mainly Wednesday night into Thursday is still set to bring a mix of rain and snow showers to the region. At this time, accumulation looks light, but we'll continue to watch it. The stories on the front page today include Legislature Mulls Rules for Drivers on Phones, Floyd County Party Fire Draws $4,500 DNR Fine, Powerball Hits $747 million, and let's begin reading the lead story titled Miracle Baby. Debut infant survives after 18 minutes with no heartbeat following birth. Family thanks hospital staff for aiding Miracle Baby. Story filed by Elizabeth Kelsey of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And the opening photograph shows the doctor holding the baby with hospital staff standing behind her. Dateline Dubuque. Gwendolyn Yeo opened her eyes and the staff standing around her Wednesday morning at Unity Point Health Findlay Hospital's family birthing suites in Dubuque, cooed and smiled. Her mother, Tracy Yao, looked down at the nearly three-week-old infant in her arms, dressed in a pink onesie and matching bow. Quote, These are all very important people, Gwen, she told her daughter. They're why you're still here, unquote. The room was full of nurses, doctors, nurse practitioners, and more from multiple Finley departments all of whom had cared for Gwendolyn during her first minutes of life earlier this month, when she was without a heartbeat for 18 minutes, until they were able to revive her. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald reports that after also receiving care in Iowa City, Gwendolyn returned home last week and is not expected to experience any lasting effects, leading her parents and hospital staff to refer to her as a miracle baby. Quote, it's amazing to see Gwen here, such a healthy little girl, said Dr. Kara LaPallery, an obstetrician-gynecologist with Dubuque Obstetrics and Gynecology. Quote, I've been worried about them since they left the hospital. It's so very cool to see them back here now, unquote. Tracy of Dubuque had a completely normal pregnancy until the morning of January 12th, just one week before her due date, when she awoke with severe pain in her lower abdomen. She wasn't overly concerned at first, but her sister-in-law convinced her to go to the hospital. When Tracy arrived, Le Pelaire recognized the signs of a placenta abruption. 
The condition occurs when the placenta detaches from the inner wall of the uterus before delivery, which can deprive a baby of oxygen and nutrients. Quote, Most placenta abruptions are mild, but there are definitely severe ones that can cause major emergencies, LaPolaire said. Tracy was told to prepare for an emergency cesarean section. She called her husband, William Yeo, who had just gotten home from working third shift at Dubuque Police Department, and he made his way to the hospital. Quote, what they told me when I got here was, when she's having a contraction, we can't find a heartbeat. That's causing red flags, so we're going in to deliver the baby now, Williams said. When Gwendolyn was delivered, she was not breathing and had no heartbeat. Quote, the only thing I heard was that she was not crying, and that was obviously a bad thing, Tracy said. Then we heard code pink, and a million people were coming into the room, unquote. Jenny Scott, nurse manager of Family Birthing Suites, said, Code pink denotes a child or infant in cardiac arrest who requires resuscitation. Staff immediately began chest compressions on Gwendolyn, who was officially coded for 18 minutes. Gwendolyn was able to be resuscitated, and staff prepared to transfer her to University of Iowa hospitals and clinics in Iowa City. Fog prevented them from transporting her via helicopter, but staff from Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids traveled to Dubuque to pick up Gwendolyn and take her to Iowa City. Quote, I remember thinking, I'm not sure if she's ever going to see her baby after this, Scott said. Tracy remained at the hospital in Dubuque for three days before she could travel to see Gwendolyn. While Tracy recovered, William stayed with their daughter in Iowa City, where he said the confidence exhibited by Gwendolyn's care team convinced him they were in good hands. Quote, when the doctor was confident and knew what he needed to do, it was really reassuring for me, he said. Tracy said the doctor's biggest concern for Gwendolyn was the possibility of brain injury from lack of oxygen or blood flow at the time of birth. For three days, doctors used a cooling blanket to intentionally lower Gwendolyn's body temperature to prevent any more brain damage. Slowly, she was warmed to natural body temperatures, and after several days, her brain scans came back almost completely clear of any spots of concern. Although Gwendolyn will be closely monitored for her first few years of life, her care team told her parents she has, quote, no significant issues neurologically or bodily, and is unlikely to have any negative lasting effects, Tracy said. Quote, if you would have told me when you left Findlay that night that she would be at our home in your house in two weeks and perfect, I would have said, oh, I pray to God that's true, said Lee Stower, a registered nurse and member of the hospital's lactation team who helped resuscitate Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn was in the hospital for a total of 12 days, returning home January 24th on her older brother Zachary's second birthday. Quote, I was so nervous that she wasn't going to be able to grow up to be like her brother, so the fact that she's going to run and jump and talk, we owe you guys so much, Tracy said to Finley's staff, later adding, quote, a lot of good things happened down there in Iowa City, but none of those good things could have happened had she not gotten the care that she got here at Findlay before she left, unquote. Gwendolyn slept peacefully Wednesday as she was passed from person to person 
every staff member wanting a turn to hold the newborn. Quote, she looks perfect, said nurse practitioner Rayla Anderson. Tracy smiled. Quote, she is. Next, we have a story from the Associated Press. Powerball jackpot grows to $747 million after no winner. Dateline Des Moines. The Powerball jackpot grew to an estimated $747 million after no one beat the odds and won the top prize in Saturday night's drawing. The numbers drawn were 2, 8, 15, 19, 58, and Powerball 10. The $747 million Powerball jackpot up for grabs Monday night is the ninth largest in U.S. lottery history and the latest in a string of huge lottery prizes. Someone in Maine won a $1.35 billion Mega Millions prize less than three weeks ago, and a California player won a record $2.04 billion Powerball jackpot last November. The jackpots grow so large because the tough odds offer just a minuscule chance of matching all six numbers and winning the top prize. That enables the jackpots, like Saturday night's $700 million top prize, to roll over and increase for months. The last time someone overcame the odds of 1 in 292.2 million and won the Powerball jackpot was November 12, 2022. The $747 million estimate is for a winner who is paid through an annuity over 29 years. Winners usually opt for cash, which for Monday night's drawing would be $403.1 million. Powerball is played in 45 states, as well as Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Next, we have a story written by Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Legislature mulls rules for drivers on phones. Most states require hands-free calling. Dateline Des Moines. Using mobile devices while driving a vehicle would be illegal, except when using hands-free modes under a proposal being considered by state lawmakers. The concept is nothing new. Similar legislation has floated around the Capitol ever since the state, in 2017, enacted a ban on texting while driving. But some lawmakers think momentum is building around the proposal, and with a large number of new legislators, this may be the year the ban on mobile device operation passes both chambers of the Iowa legislature and makes it to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk for her consideration. Quote, it's time to get it done, Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat from Coralville, said Friday while recording Iowa Press on Iowa PBS. I sure hope so. It's something that, certainly, it's long overdue, unquote. From 2015 to 2021 in Iowa, the average annual number of crashes that involved distracted driving increased by 64.9% over the previous 14 years, according to state transportation data. Over the same period, the number of distracted driving-related crashes involving fatalities and total deaths from crashes both spiked by 237% in Iowa. In 2022, a total of 338 people died on Iowa roads, according to the Iowa Department of Transportation. Already this year, 25 have been killed. 
State law enforcement officials say the current ban on texting while driving is nearly impossible to enforce because it is difficult to prove a driver was texting, which is illegal, and not making a call, which remains legal. Proposed legislation that is advancing in the Iowa Senate would allow for mobile device use while driving only in hands-free mode. Any handheld use of a device while driving would be prohibited. The bill, Senate File 6-0, is supported by five different organizations that represent state law enforcement officials, plus the state public safety and transportation departments, according to state lobbying records. The proposal also is backed by groups representing insurance companies, car dealers, lawyers, senior citizens, brain injury prevention advocates, and local governments. No groups are registered in opposition to the proposal. Senator Mark Lofgren, a Republican from Muscatine, who has been managing the proposed legislation in the Senate, said that as an avid runner, he has witnessed an increase in drivers who operate mobile devices while driving. Quote, it seems like 20 years ago, as a runner, you didn't see many drivers distracted, Lofgren said. Quote, it seems like it's gotten worse, and it's gotten worse, and it's gotten worse, unquote. Lofgren said he also hopes the proposal passes the Iowa legislature this year. Thirty states prohibit the handheld use of mobile devices while driving, according to the National Governor's Highway Safety Association. House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford, said he is not sure how many House Republicans support the proposal, given 24 of them are in their first year in the legislature. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, Republican from Grimes, said something similar. There are nine new Senate Republicans this year. He said now that the bill managed by Lofgren has passed out of the Senate Transportation Committee, a full roster of Senate Republicans will start discussing it. Next, we have a story from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Journalist Jared Strong, Floyd County Party Fire, draws $4,500 DNR fine. A birthday party and swap meet in North Iowa last year resulted in a $4,500 fine for its host after photographic and video evidence revealed that partygoers burned a car as part of the festivities, according to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Quote, it was a fine party until they lit the car on fire, said Daniel Watterson, an environmental specialist for the DNR who investigated the incident. Video of the event shows a large crowd gathered at Cody Ritter's acreage southeast of Charles City for a variety of vehicular activities that culminated in someone driving a Buick car up a shallow earthen ramp into the side of a trailer. Moments later, the video, a link to which was provided by the DNR, shows the trailer, car, and other debris aflame. Quote, you bring any marshmallows? said someone who was filming the scene. Quote, tastes like Buick, unquote. Ritter had been warned about illegal fires in early September by the Floyd County Sheriff's Office after he advertised the event online. A recent DNR order said the DNR obtained evidence after the September 24th party that had been gleaned from the internet postings that showed the trailer and car had been burned, which is illegal. The department tried to contact Ritter in early October about the incident. 
quote, Mr. Ritter called DNR later that same day and said he thought the trailer could be burned since he cleaned it out after receiving the open burning rules, the DNR order said. Quote, he claimed to have removed the railroad ties from the burn pile as well and stated that he did not burn any tires. He stated that a car may have got a little hot, unquote. The video and at least one photo show the car engulfed in flames. Ritter cannot be reached for comment, but he addressed the DNR fine in a Facebook post January 6th. Quote, I ask of you folks to be ready for September 23rd. We're doing it again, minus burning a car or anything within the packet of do not burn, handed to me per the state of Iowa, of course. I have had it with the narcissistic neighbor across the road. Burnouts till sunrise. Louder, the better, unquote. Ritter disposed of the remaining debris from the fire in November, the DNR order said. Now we turn the page to the Northeast Iowa area escapades. Here are just a few of the events and goings-on worth checking out this week in the Northeast Iowa area. On Thursday, February 9th through Saturday, February 11th, Love Local in downtown Cedar Falls. Shopping for something special for your sweetheart? Cedar Falls downtown businesses are sponsoring Love Local from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Thursday through Saturday. More than 20 shops are participating, including gift, clothing, home interior, chocolate, and other specialty shops. Each will give away a gift basket containing a bottle of wine and favorite finds from shops throughout the downtown district. Each basket will be a little different, so enter at each location. No purchase is necessary, but the more purchases you make, the more love letters entries you can write. On Friday and Saturday, the 10th and 11th, Love Under the Stars, a grown-up Valentine special is planned Friday and Saturday at the Norris Corson Family Planetarium at the Grout Museum, 503 South Street, Waterloo. Quote, For the love of gods, under the 22-foot planetarium dome, we'll explore unfiltered stories of Greek gods and goddesses, their exploits, love lives, and the constellations they inspired in the night sky. Saturday's shows are sold out, but tickets remain for Friday showings at 6, 7, and 8 p.m. Check for availability. Admission is $12 for Grout members, $15 for non-members. Admission includes the planetarium show, photo booth opportunity, champagne, and a box of chocolates. Recommended for adult audiences. Pre-registration is required at gmdistrict.org slash for the love of gods. For more details, visit gmdistrict.org or call area code 319-234-6357. On Friday the 10th, take a break for midday melodies. Relax and lighten your spirit with a music break on Friday. Midday melodies has started a new season at the Hearst Center for the Arts, 304 West Searley Boulevard, Cedar Falls. Bring your lunch and enjoy an interlude featuring the University of Northern Iowa flute students under the direction of Hannah Porter Osena. The performance is from noon to 1 p.m., and it's free. Future performances are March 10th, featuring UNI trombone students 
and April 14th with UNI tuba students. Also on Friday, Arch Allies at Electric Park, the tribute band Arch Allies, will perform at Valentine's Night on Fridays at 7 p.m. at Electric Park Ballroom, 310 West Congress Street, Waterloo. Music from Journey, Styx, Queen, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, and REO Speedwagon will be performed. VIP table tickets are $50 and include a swag bag. General admission tickets are $15 in advance and $20 on the day of the show. For advanced tickets, go to www.nationalcattlecongress.com. Also on Friday, Mark Palantines with Friends. It's been called the Good as Heck Palantine Celebration, and it's a chance to celebrate friendship and have some fun. The event is from 7 to 9 p.m. Friday at the Waterloo Center for the Arts, 225 Commercial Street. The special evening will include champagne, desserts, and a Lizzo-inspired DJ set. Door prizes including a $100 gift certificate from Roth Jewelers and luxurious spa services at local salons will be given away. Pretty Good Company will provide everything needed to create Valentine cards. Beer, wine, and other party beverages will be available for purchase. Tickets are $25 each. Purchase five tickets and bring a friend for free. Tickets are available at WCA by calling area code 319-291-4490 or online. Event sponsor is Roth Jewelers. Proceeds support Friends of the Art Center. And the last event listed here is for Saturday the 11th, Sweetheart Jam Session Set. Homegrown Music Jam is encouraging musicians to join in playing and or singing Sweetheart Music on Saturday from 1.45 to 4.45 p.m. at the Cedar Falls Community Center, 528 Main Street. Bring along your instrument and songs you'd like to perform, or just come to listen and dance to the music. Homemade snacks will be provided by volunteers. The admission is free. Donations are encouraged and accepted. Now we have a story about the movie Box Office Scores, Knock at the Cabin, Knocks Off Avatar, Dateline, New York. For the first time in almost two months, the box office doesn't belong to blue people. After seven weeks as the top film in theaters, Avatar, The Way of Water, was knocked out of the number one spot by the M. Night Shyamalan Theater, Knock at the Cabin, and the octogenarian comedy, 80 for Brady. Knock at the Cabin, a home invasion horror film with an apocalyptic riff, dethroned James Cameron's 3D sci-fi epic with $14.2 million in ticket sales at U.S. and Canadian theaters, according to Studio Estimates Sunday. The Universal Pictures release stars Dave Bautista as one of four strangers who approach a family vacationing in a rural cabin. The opening for Knock at the Cabin came up shy of some of Shyamalan's recent releases. His first film, 2021's Old, about a beach that rapidly ages those who visit it, launched with a $16.9 million and ultimately collected $90.1 million worldwide. His 2019 film, Glass, 
the third installment in the director's Unbreakable trilogy, opened with $40.3 million on its way to grossing $247 million globally. Every other film directed by Shia Malin has opened higher than Knock at the Cabin. But Knock at the Cabin still marks Shia Malin's seventh film as director to open number one, with a modest budget of $20 million. Knock at the Cabin should easily turn a profit. The film, which drew mostly positive reviews from critics, 68% on Rotten Tomatoes, added another $7 million internationally. Taking second place was 80 for Brady, a comedy about four friends, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Rita Moreno, and Sally Field, who take a trip to the 2017 Super Bowl. It opened with an estimated $12.5 million. Shortly after announcing his retirement from football again, Tom Brady attended the film's premiere. Paramount Pictures employed a unique strategy in releasing 80 for Brady. While many films have sought to capitalize on higher ticket prices through large format or 3D screenings or surge pricing, which films like The Batman have tried, Paramount went in another direction for 80 for Brady. The studio partnered with exhibitors, including the largest chains, to play 80 for Brady at matinee prices to help lure its largely older audience. Half of ticket buyers were over the age of 55. It seemed to work. At a time when comedies have struggled mightily in theaters, 80 for Brady, with a production budget of $28 million, had one of the best openings for a live-action comedy in years. Discount pricing is to continue for the rest of the film's run. Avatar The Way of Water slide to third with $10.8 million domestically in its eighth weekend. The film's number one streak matched the run of 2009's Avatar. In the last four decades, only those two by Cameron and his Titanic in 1997 have had such sustained reigns atop the box office. Quote, the Way of Water continues to perform especially strongly overseas, where its $27.9 million this weekend pushed its overall total to $2.17 billion worldwide. That puts it at the fourth highest gross of all time. Cameron, with two Avatar films and Titanic, now accounts for three of the top four. BTS, yet to come in cinemas, took in $5.1 million to land in fifth place. The BTS concert film is drawn from their October 2022 performance in Busan, South Korea, a send-off show before the group began a two-year hiatus. It opened in 1,111 locations. Next, we have an article which answers the question that we are all asking, why kitchen remodels take so long. Story filed by Hunter Boyce, of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. According to USA Cabinet Store Kitchen and Bath Design Center, the typical kitchen remodel project takes anywhere from three to six months to complete. A larger kitchen remodel can take even longer, sometimes more than a year. Smart Remodeling, LLC, counters with an estimate of six to nine weeks for the average kitchen remodel, with larger kitchens and more complex projects 
often taking 10 to 12 weeks. The estimates may vary quite a bit, but either way, kitchen remodels are notoriously lengthy projects. Atlanta-based terracotta design build owner explained to HGTV that it all depends on the scope and details of the renovation. Quote, full kitchen renovations that include changes in plumbing and electrical service locations, along with all new appliances, products, and finishes, can take anywhere between three to five months, depending on the size and complexity of the kitchen. Smaller cosmetic updates, such as new cabinets, countertops, and backsplash with no floor plan changes, can be done as quickly as a few weeks, unquote. To ensure a quick turnaround during your next kitchen remodel, the Atlanta-based design expert said organization is the key to success. Quote, the best way to expedite the renovation process is to establish a clear and realistic budget at the outset, place all material and product orders early, and make sure your design build team has all of the project specifications before demolition begins, he said. According to USA Cabinet Store Kitchen and Bath Design Center, the planning phase alone can take quite a while, but could save time once work actually starts. Quote, at this point, you will assemble all of your kitchen remodeling ideas and go over them with your architect, interior designer, and contractor, the company's website said. You will probably need at least a month of planning and design before you start the actual work. Your contractor will also need to start ordering materials, which will determine when the work can start. As you do not really want to start and then have to stop and wait for windows or appliances to arrive, especially in these times where global shipping has been delayed because of the pandemic. Getting your building materials can take longer. Once the renovations begin, Smart Remodeling LLC's website warned that a project could be drawn out for a few more reasons. Kitchen renovation takes a bit longer than other parts of the house due to the highly moving parts, the company's website said. So many things have to be done within a very short period. Unlike other rooms that require basic features such as electricity, heating, and four walls, your kitchen needs more than just that. Ideally, your kitchen will need electric wiring, heating, extensive plumbing, durable flooring, a robust cabinet set, strong countertops, built-in appliances, and user-friendly space. All these features take time to design and install. For those interested in going DIY, no matter the number of possible delays one can try to account for, it is important to remember that the most accurate estimates will always come from hired professionals. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, February 6th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, since today's paper does not include any obituaries, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from Sunday's Des Moines Register, written by Matthew Phelps, who was a minister with the Salvation Army for 11 years and currently serves as a hospital chaplain. The title of his piece, Make SNAP More Useful Instead of Restricting the Poor's Access. As a former minister with the Salvation Army, I worked directly with the poor for many years, 
helping them overcome obstacles to financial success. I can tell you that the Iowa's current and proposed restrictions on SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, do not and will not provide an accountability, but instead will help keep people impoverished. By limiting how much money people can save, SNAP restrictions will prevent people from saving for a down payment for a house, buying a reliable vehicle for work, making home repairs, and saving for college, all barriers to financial success. By limiting how many vehicles a family can own, SNAP will determine where and when two-parent households can work. This is the opposite of what we should be doing. Instead of these proposed restrictions, we should reform SNAP by adding provisions to help the poor overcome financial barriers. New provisions could include the following. Number one, giving SNAP beneficiaries the incentives to save up for a down payment on a house, their children's college, and emergency savings, rather than punishing them for having too many assets. Number two, allowing high school students in SNAP households to work and save money for college without having to contribute 30% of their income to food, which SNAP rules currently force them to do. The current system incentivizes minors not to work and prevents our poorest teenagers from saving money for college. Number three, allowing families with more than one working person to have two vehicles for more flexible working arrangements. Iowa will soon spend $345 million annually to give handouts to children attending private schools. In a few years, all children will have access to these funds regardless of their household income. They will have no asset limitations. Families could own 20 vehicles and still qualify for this handout. Yet each year, these unaccountable funds will cost $300 million more than what is spent to administer SNAP benefits by the state of Iowa. Iowa will be spending 10 times the amount it spends on SNAP, largely to subsidize the children of the rich who attend private school, while the average family subsidizing SNAP receives $5,664 a year in food assistance. The rich will be given a check for about $7,598 per child who attends private school. I don't doubt the sincerity of those behind these two pieces of legislation, but accountability clearly isn't a consistent concern when passing out legislative handouts. There are always people who abuse financial assistance. These people will find new and creative ways around the new rules and will continue using SNAP, but those who genuinely need our help will be removed or hindered under the proposed SNAP rules. Given the massive, unaccountable handout we will soon be offering the rich through private school vouchers, Iowa can afford a SNAP benefit that helps move people out of poverty rather than one that incentivizes them to stay impoverished. Next, we have an editorial that appeared in the Storm Lake Times pilot, titled, Denying Human Nature. If there were one thing Iowa could agree on, you would hope it would be compassion for everyone. This life is complicated and confusing. Some boys like to play with G.I. Joe. Some like to play with Barbie. The discerning parent or teacher leaves them be and makes certain they do their arithmetic homework. They advise the boys with the G.I. Joes to be nice to the boys playing with the Barbies. Don't bully them. 
people are different. Iowa Republicans controlling the legislature are in the mood to hassle people who may be different from them. All sorts of bills float around. This week, a legislator had to tell parents of transgender children that he doesn't agree that this is right. Queer has no place in the classroom, the committee voted. Under this law, a teacher would not be able to tell the boys that the boy in the corner is different. It is not his choice or the choice of his parents, and that people have been different from each other for time immemorial. The art teacher might remind the legislature to look up those Italian sculptors and their heroic nude males. Hello in there. Or the art teacher might remind us that the greatest artist in Iowa history, Grant Wood, hung out with other great artists and writers whose sexuality would draw rebuke from the morality police then and now. That's why they hung out in Stone City. The bankers in Cedar Rapids looked the other way, thank goodness. The reality is, and always has been, that human beings are not strictly heterosexual. Some people view reality through a moral prism predicated on the shame of St. Augustine or some other tortured soul. Recall that Augustine lived a playboy's life of debauchery, saw the shallowness of it, and went on to saddle Catholic moral theology with an obsessive sexual predilection. Unfortunately, it finds its way into the legislature, where people forget the new commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you loathe yourself in a chauvinist sort of way, you are compelled to heap it on your neighbor. A little bit of this is going on in Des Moines. Iowa should be a place where we can approach each other with an attempt at understanding, especially in the classroom, where children need every bit of support as they sort out a confusing and mean world. Don't lock Grant Wood in the closet. Don't rebuke the goodwill that writer Tennessee Williams brought to the University of Iowa. Don't shun that boy to the corner and deny his reality. It is possible to take a different point of view without being a heretic against God. Too bad that this is how we have to learn. A lot of innocent children take the lumps. A lot of lives get traumatized. Eventually, we will appreciate the reality of a reckoning for cruelty. That's a sin in anybody's book. Next, we have a piece from the New York Times, written by Peter Baker. For Biden, a chance for a fresh start in a new era of divided government. Dateline Washington. President Biden probably will not put it quite this way when he gets up before Congress to address the nation this week, but the state of America's union is disunion. To see that, he will need only turn around to find a Republican House Speaker seated behind him, determined to block his every move. So Mr. Biden's message of unity, a hard sell already during his first two years in office, may prove even more out of sync on Tuesday night as he delivers his first State of the Union address of this new era of divided government. Yet for a president who prides himself on working across the aisle, a unity pitch may paradoxically be a useful cudgel to hammer his newly empowered opponents. Mr. Biden plans to present himself to what is likely to be his largest television audience of the year as the adult in the room, willing and able to reach bipartisan compromises in an age of deep partisanship. According to advisors who spoke on condition of anonymity, 
to describe the speech in advance. He will point to legislation he signed with Republican support since taking office and call on Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the GOP majority that won control of the House in November's midterm elections to follow that example. But knowing that any such cooperation is unlikely from a caucus that claims a mandate to resist him at every turn, Mr. Biden's advisors expect him to try to draw a mature contrast to squabbling, angry Republicans divided over the election of Mr. McCarthy as Speaker, and more intent on investigating Hunter Biden than advancing the nation's business. Quote, sometimes having divided government actually helps you politically because it allows you, as president, to present your agenda as eminently responsible, meaning that only irresponsible people would oppose what you're trying to do, said Peter H. Weimer, who is the Director of Strategic Initiatives for President George W. Bush, when Republicans lost both chambers of Congress in the 2006 midterm elections. Quote, Biden's been dealt a pretty good hand if you want to portray the opposition party as extreme and radical. Because they are, Mr. Wellners added, let's call it a target-rich environment, unquote. Still, White House advisors have been debating in recent days how hard to go after House Republicans after what they considered a decent meeting between Mr. Biden and Mr. McCarthy, a California Republican, on the debt limit and spending restraints. While the two leaders remained at loggerheads, both sides deemed the session an important step, and advisors said the president cannot give up the idea of making deals, however unlikely they may seem. The president huddled at Camp David over the weekend to go over the latest draft of the address with top advisors, including Mike Donilon, Bruce Reed, Anita Dunn, and Stephen J. Ricchetti, as well as Vinay Reddy, the chief White House speechwriter, and John Meacham, the historian, who often helps craft some of Mr. Biden's most significant speeches. Republican leaders have little incentive at the moment to seek common ground with Mr. Biden, pushed by their conservative wing to stand up to what they characterize as an administration that has taken the country too far to the left with big spending programs that have fueled inflation and deficits. To respond to Mr. Biden's address, GOP officials have selected Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders of Arkansas, the former White House press secretary under President Donald J. Trump, who made clear she planned to use her platform to highlight the failures of President Biden, as she put it in a statement. Quote, We are ready to begin a new chapter in the story of America, to be written by a new generation of leaders ready to defend our freedom against the radical left, and expand access to quality education, jobs, and opportunity for all, she added. Mr. Biden wants to use Tuesday's speech to make the case that government works, citing legislation to rebuild the nation's roads, bridges, and broadband, jumpstart the semiconductor industry, and expand health benefits for veterans, all of which passed on bipartisan votes and he plans to discuss defending democracy at home and abroad at a time when Mr. Trump is talking about termination of part of the Constitution to restore himself to power 
and Russia is waging a war of conquest in Europe. Quote, the president's message is made for this moment, said John Favreau, who was President Barack Obama's chief speechwriter when he lost the House in 2010. He's the guy who's been working with both parties to get stuff done that matters to people, while Republican leaders have been working to appease the most extreme wing of their party. I would bet that he'll emphasize policies that have broad bipartisan appeal and ask for good faith cooperation instead of cheap political stunts. And if Republicans refuse, he can take that case to the American people in 2024, unquote. By all accounts, Mr. Biden plans to announce a campaign for re-election, probably in March or April. Advisors are acutely aware that his delivery of the speech may be as important as its content, that he needs to appear forceful and vigorous at age 80 to demonstrate that he can handle the burdens of the presidency even at 86, at the end of eight years in the Oval Office. Polarization has become the new normal in American society. Three-quarters of Americans consider the country divided, and they are, naturally, divided about whom to blame. According to a poll by YouGov, only 23% say Mr. Biden has made the nation more united, while 44% say he has made it more divided, and 24% say he has made little difference. Mr. Biden finished his second year in office with more political good news than after the rocky first year. Gas prices and inflation are falling. Unemployment is at its lowest level in more than half a century, and average daily COVID-19 deaths are down about 75% since his last State of the Union speech. He passed major legislation tackling prescription drug prices and climate change while assembling strong coalitions at home and abroad to confront Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Mr. Biden's approval rating stands at 42%, barely above the 41% at his last State of the Union address, according to an aggregation of surveys by 538, and lower at this stage than any president in 75 years of polling, except for Mr. Trump and Ronald Reagan, who was hobbled by a deep recession. Mr. Trump, of course, went on to lose re-election, but Mr. Biden prefers the lessons of Mr. Reagan, Mr. Clinton, and Mr. Obama, all of whom rebounded to win a second term. Each of them started out their path to recovery with a State of the Union address. Now we have a story from USA Today. Democrats approve 2024 primary calendar that demotes Iowa and promotes South Carolina. Dateline Philadelphia. Democrats on Saturday approved a plan to reorder their 2024 presidential primary calendar in an effort to amplify diverse voices earlier in the presidential selection process, overruling objections from two states that have traditionally held the first contests, Iowa and New Hampshire. The National Party greenlit a schedule that moves South Carolina to the front of the line. The revamped calendar elevates Nevada to the second position alongside New Hampshire and welcomes Georgia and Michigan to the early primary window for the first time. Iowa's caucus, which has traditionally served as the starting gun for the presidential election, is being displaced. Quote, this calendar 
does what is long overdue, Democratic National Committee Chair Jamie Harrison told the party members before the vote. Quote, it expands the number of voices in the early window, and it elevates diverse communities that are the, at the core of the Democratic Party. The changes Democrats approved on Saturday will only apply to 2024. Committee members have vowed to revisit the calendar before the 2028 election. New Hampshire Democrats aggressively fought the shift, arguing ahead of the meeting that they are unable to change a state law that requires them to hold the first primary. They also warned that the changes could harm President Joe Biden's expected re-election effort. Democrats are in the minority in the New Hampshire state legislature, and Republicans in power are unwilling to adjust the law. Quote, respecting our state law and lifting up diverse voices need not be mutually exclusive, said Joanne Dowell, a DNC member speaking on behalf of New Hampshire. Iowa also opposed the changes. Rita Hart, the newly elected chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, said her state faces difficulties in changing the date of its caucus and cannot support a calendar that could weaken Democrats in the state. The 11th hour push was futile. Democrats easily approved the calendar, which Biden personally proposed, in a voice vote during a gathering in Philadelphia. South Carolina was the first state that Biden won in 2020 after receiving an endorsement from veteran Democratic Congressman Jim Clyburn. Clyburn was instrumental in convincing party leaders to add South Carolina to the early window more than a decade ago, but emphasized Saturday that making his home state first was Biden's proposal. Quote, I don't get hung up on that, Clyburn said in an interview. If the president, who's the head of our party, feels a way about something, let's support the president, unquote. Biden intervened to solve intra-party squabbling over the matter last year, after Democrats postponed their decision on the lineup until after the midterms. He pressed members of the Rules and Bylaws Committee of the DNC in a December letter to adopt his recommended 2024 primary calendar. Party officials who sit on the panel endorsed Biden's recommendations and directed South Carolina to hold its contest on February 3rd, followed by New Hampshire and Nevada on February 6th, Georgia on February 13th, and Michigan on February 27th. Lee Saunders, president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, said in an interview that the DNC panel had been discussing changes to the schedule before Biden weighed in. Quote, now, clearly, the president had his ideas about what it looked like, but we were committed to having states up front that were representative of our country, representative of people of color, representative of states where the labor movement is strong, where we can bring those folks to the table, Saunders said. It didn't happen overnight. Biden steered clear of the dispute as he addressed DNC members during a Friday evening speech where he was ushered on stage to chance of four more years and hinted at a re-election announcement. DNC members were unfazed leading into Saturday night's vote by Iowa and New Hampshire's arguments that they should continue to have the right to hold their contests first. States that stand to gain from the calendar changes also refused to back down. Nevada, 
stressed that its coalition helped deliver the U.S. Senate for Democrats in 2022 and re-elected the only Latina senator to the nation. Michigan Representative Debbie Dengel emphasized her state's track record of picking presidents. Quote, the issues that are going to make the difference in general elections are going to be the issues that are going to be discussed when they're in a state like Michigan, not when you're in a non-diverse state like Iowa, Dingle said in an interview before the vote. States that go against the DNC risk losing delegates to the national convention, and Biden, should he run for a second term, would be sanctioned if he appears on their primary ballots. Quote, you have a primary where nobody shows up, South Carolina Party Chair Trav Robertson told USA Today. Quote, I mean, if you have a party and nobody shows up, it's not a hell of a party, unquote. Ray Buckley, the chair of New Hampshire's state party, told reporters during a Friday press conference in Philadelphia that the political dynamic in the state leaves Democrats in an impossible no-win position, unquote. Quote, New Hampshire will still hold the first-in-the-nation primary whether or not the DNC approves of it, Buckley said. At a January meeting, the Rules and Bylaws Committee voted to give New Hampshire and Georgia more time to meet the requirements to hold early contests after both states missed an initial deadline. Georgia Democrats are negotiating with Republicans in the state to move up their primary date. But unlike New Hampshire, the only penalty they face for failing to make the change is having a later contest. Harrison said Georgia is working very hard on the date change. They know their state. They know what they've got to do in order to make it happen, he said in an interview. I have a lot of trust that they will navigate the process, unquote. State party chair and Georgia representative Nakima Williams has been stressing the economic benefits to moving the primary up in her conversations with Republicans. Quote, we've shown that with investments, Georgia is a true battleground state and we are ready to meet the moment. Georgia has a history of stepping up in big moments, and we're ready to do it again, Williams told USA Today. The Republican National Committee said in a Saturday statement in the decision by Democrats would cause chaos and accuse them of abandoning voters in Iowa and New Hampshire. Scott Brennan, a DNC member from Iowa who sits on the RBC, said the calendar was dropped on party members, and that a situation of continued uncertainty would almost certainly drag on throughout 2023 because of outstanding issues with New Hampshire and Georgia. Quote, we will leave here with absolutely nothing settled, Brennan said. Now turning to the sports page, college women's basketball. Northern Iowa races past Indiana State in a blowout. Cedar Falls, Grace Bofelli scored 23 points and grabbed 8 rebounds in just 17 minutes of play as Northern Iowa obliterated Indiana State 91-51 Sunday at the McLeod Center. Bofelli hit 8 of 11 shots, including her lone 3-point attempt as the Panthers, 15-6 overall and 11-2 in Missouri Valley Conference play, dominated from start to finish. UNI led 21-8 after 1-39-24 at halftime before exploding in the second half, outscoring the Sycamores 
9 and 12, and 4 and 8, by a score of 52 to 48 over the final 20 minutes, including 32 to 15 in the third quarter. Maya McDermott added 12 points, and Emerson Green had 11 points, 5 rebounds, and 2 assists. In all, 9 different UNI players scored in the game, including reserve post Rachel Hayatla, who had 14 points and 5 rebounds. Riley Goble had a strong floor game off the bench with 7 rebounds, 2 assists, 2 steals, and 2 blocked shots. The Panthers forced 20 Indiana State turnovers and 8 different UNI players recorded at least 1 steal. The Panthers returned to action Friday at Illinois Chicago. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, February 6th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 